Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion Lane Ministries, and this is our Arab Shabbat service here at B'nai Shalom. Welcome. I'm glad you were able to join us this Sabbath for it. Look forward to being here each week and enjoying Sabbath with you. A couple of uh, announcements that I'd like to cover before we get started. Uh, for those of you who are registered for the Feast of Tabernacles and coming, you'll be getting your confirmation packet sent to you, uh, sometimes in email, sometimes mailed out. If you get an email, make sure you check your spam folder, but sometimes they'll throw it into that and you don't actually get it. So make sure you check to get it because everybody should be getting it. And make sure you go through all the material. There's important material in there for you that you need to know before you come to camp as well as a form that needs to be completed and bring with you to the camp when you check in. Also, uh, we want to share with everybody that if you're planning on coming to Tabernacles, make sure if you can, if you've got one of those iPhone smartphone things, download our Tabernacles app. Go to Lion and Lamb and you'll see it under Tabernacles under the app. Download that to your phone and um, off the app store thing. And you will have in your hand, in your iPhone, the daily schedule, um, all of the planned teachings, the whole menu for while we're out there. Plus, it gives us the ability to give important uh, announcements to you in the camp uh, if, if um, different things happen. So if you can, get the app and uh, join with us at Tabernacles for that. We are going to be broadcasting certain programs at Tabernacles, if you'd like to be a part of them, even though you physically can't come to with us. Uh, you can log on, and for a simple donation, you can get a subscription for those broadcasts and, um, and be a part of Sukkot with us while we're out at Chandler. Also, just a quick reminder, registration is now open for the Hanukkah conference in December. And if you'd like to be a part of that, register on that and let us know you want to come. Lots of activities for kids and youth to enjoy Hanukkah with, and check those out if you would like to do it. All right, without any further ado, let us go to Kiddush and begin our Sabbath. Shalom. We're the Judah family, and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Amen. 
Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadunai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and bless you and thank you for the wonderful wives that you've given to us in our homes. Father, I thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she takes care of our children, as she teaches and educates them, and as she takes care of the home and me. Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart, and I pray that you would pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. I love her and thank you for the unmerited favor and grace that you have given me, Lord, through her. So I thank you, Lord, on this Shabbat, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. And now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Bahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Ba'chodesh Nohorat Echilot Now the blessing of the Messiah. 
Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha'yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael otit le'olam, kesheshet yamim asadonai et hashamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom hashavi shavat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechim ezavcha hayom alevavecha. Veshinantam lavenecha, vedepardabam beshiftecha, veyetecha, uvleftecha, vederech ushakbika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totavot binenecha, uketavtam la mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Hear me as I pray, God, I don't know. 
Oh 
Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 29, where a Torah portion for this week will begin entitled Nitzavim, which means standing. As you open the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim Venetan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amen Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. As I said, our Torah portion this week is entitled Nitzavim, which means stand, and it begins at verse 10 of chapter 29. However, I do want to point out something at the start of chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. Um, as I've said for many weeks, the children of Israel were standing uh, in the plains of Moab, getting ready to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And Moses is giving the final oration to the children of Israel of confirming the covenant with the people that were standing there. Chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, however, changes the, the preamble to that um, chapter, goes like this. It says this at verse 1 of chapter 29. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. In all of the words of the book of Deuteronomy, these are the words that it says Moses spoke to the children of Israel. He was reading from a book, from a book of the covenant. However, the words here in chapter 29 are the words that the Lord commanded Moses to speak. We'll say some of the same things. You'll hear some of the same words that we've heard before where it says, I'm making this covenant with you today. And if you do, if you keep this covenant, I will do this. If you break this covenant, should you uh, do this, then I will have anger and I will punish you in this way. Some of the language sounds the same. However, these words... The Lord actually commanded Moses specifically to say, almost as if these are the words of God here in this place. These words are also unique in this chapter as well. I love this Torah portion. In fact, this is one of my favorite Torah portions. And the reason why that is, is that these words, the words of God, have the power that travels through space and time. And these words exist outside of time and are written to you and me here today in modern day. The, we could read words and we can say, okay, Moses said this to the children of Israel and this happened thousands of years ago and this is what was going on at the time. And we can cover all different kinds of uh, passages that talk about the history of Israel and things that happened. These words in this portion that begin here at verse 10 are more powerful and they're more unique that they speak all the way through time to even to modern day. Uh, a rule of thumb that I've said before as well is when you see in the scripture, when you, especially in the Torah, when it says the word today, that as it is this day, Moses spoke this and you shall believe this today, that that is a good rule of thumb is that that word and that commandment 
pretend, act as if those words are being spoken to you right now in this place. The day that you read it, the day that you hear it, look at your surroundings, see where you are in your life today and let those words impact you today. That is a theme of this entire Torah portion, that this confirming covenant that God commanded Moses to speak these words penetrates time and space and is for you and me. And it spells it out perfectly in that way. Let me start here at verse 10 of chapter 29 of Deuteronomy as we begin this Torah portion. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders, your tribes, and your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God makes with you today. And he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you just Just as he has spoken to you, just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's no question who he's speaking to in ancient times. That this, the whole congregation of Israel had gathered here. That it was not just the leaders. There's other passages in which God says, Moses, gather the leaders and say this to them. Gather Aaron and his sons and say this to him. This is an instance where the entire congregation of Israel is present. And it even gives the details to the one who draws your water, who cuts your wood, the little ones, your wives. There's no question that it represents every single person who was in the camp of Israel. Alien, stranger, servant, noble, leader, didn't matter. The covenant was made with all people. Okay, so now that we have that straight, now listen to these words here at verse 14. I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord your God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. Wow, that's interesting because who else would who else would that be? Well, that means everybody else. Everybody else in the world, everybody who was alive at that time, who was not present. That also includes that phrasing, includes everybody who hadn't even been born yet. Anyone who had already died before. That the covenant is made with all people that is not even present there at that, at that place, and that's you and me. That's you and me, that we can read these words, the words of this covenant that God is speaking to us here through Moses, through the prophet of Moses, and in these words here in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, and he is speaking and making that covenant with us today. We can read these words, and I pray that you would let these words impact you in that way, that you would renew the covenant and renew your sense of belief and faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he made a covenant with your forefathers, and that you today would confirm that covenant. Make a prayer before the Lord and pray to him and confirm the covenant that you have with God. God made that covenant with them back then. He also said back then, he said, I'll make this covenant with anyone who's even not here at present in this place. And that's you. That covenant is for you. And if we accept that, and if we understand that, that that's our relationship, that we serve a God who is all-powerful, who exists outside of time, the creator of heaven and earth, and the one who will be there at the end, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then that is the God that we serve, and that is the God that we are in covenant with. What an amazing blessing that is. 
So I pray that you would let those words impact you today as you hear this message or as you go, and maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's the next day, that God is so powerful in his word that his words exist outside of time. The passage continues on and now starts giving us more of those words of warning, those sort of things where it's like, if you don't believe, and if you don't follow the covenant, if you don't follow my words, this is what's going to happen. And he actually gives a procedure, and there's a progression here in the next couple of verses that is very interesting in how people fall away from the covenant with God. Let me continue on reading here. He's making the covenant with you today. Now, verse 16. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt, and that we came through the nations which you passed by, and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold. You saw these things. You know they're there. Verse 18. So that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God and go and serve the gods of the of these nations and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood and so it may not happen when you hear the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying i shall have peace even though i follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober here is this very interesting progression of how somebody falls out of the covenant with god there were three levels to it, and I, if, you, if you picked up on it, that's great. The first one is idolatry. The first one is your eyes are simply ensnared by something else. You're walking along the path. You dwelt among the nations. You dwelt in the land of Egypt. You know these things are there, yet your eyes turned to idols of stone and wood and gold and silver, and you followed after another god. That's how it starts. That's how you, follow, that's how you fall out of covenant with God. That's how you, you're ensnared by it. And God knows this. And he gives the warning that that shall not happen. And that's the first thing that can happen. And then it says at the end of verse 18 where it says, And may it not be among you a root-bearing bitterness or wormwood. That's what happens to other people, other believers. And maybe you know somebody, and you probably, I, I'm, as I'm saying this, you probably can even think of somebody that you've run into in your life that is just bitter. That they have bitterness in their heart and in their soul. And they might be a believer. They might be somebody who's walked with the Lord and has had a profession of faith for many, many years. Yet they're bitter about life. They're bitter about things and things that have gone wrong. And as everybody, everybody has, has stumbled and fallen and, uh, and the right, even the righteous sin seven times a day. But the, and so we're going through the, the process here. But then as you grow, do you develop this sense of bitterness? Do you allow a root of bitterness to just well up inside of you? And that then you're just bitter about life? That's what happens to people, even believers, even the strongest of believers and those that, that have a testimony of walking with the Lord, and then they fall away. And then they get, they're angry, and they're, and they're bitter at God, and they're bitter at what the, the things that have happened. And that is a continued progression that as you've been ensnared by the rest of the world, you then become embittered with what the Lord, thinking that the Lord should have done more for you in your life. And that's how people become bitter, and they continue to, to step further and further away from a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And then the last one is this, where it says, And may it not happen, when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart. 
saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my own heart. This is when it progresses even further into self-worship. Where one who has stepped away from the covenant with God and he's, fall, he's, he's become bitter with what God has done. He's already been ensnared by idolatry. And then they simply become, they worship themselves and that their mind is the all-powerful all thing. They can follow the dictates of their own heart and he can find peace in all of his life without God. This is how it just continued progressively gets worse. And some of you might know somebody who has done this. They've walked away from the faith and now they don't believe anything. They might, you almost, you question, well, are they an atheist? Well, no, they believe in, they believe God does exist or this, but if they think about it and philosophize for long enough, they can figure out the way that the world works. And it devolves into this essence of self-worship, where they just look at themselves and they think that they're all powerful and all knowing. And that's actually where some people who have gone so far into believing in science over creation and, and, and the, conflict between science and creation and that kind of thing people think that we as human beings are the smartest creatures on the earth and we can figure this out and we can figure the world out and how the world works and religion is kind of where look we believe in a god there's a god who is greater and mightier and smarter than we are and that he's the one who created the world and i'm going to follow after him the words that he's spoken and what he speaks to me and i'm not going to believe that i'm the smartest person on the planet but those that do, they worship themselves. They might call themselves an atheist, but there's something they truly do believe in. They believe in the power of the mind, and they believe in all of these things, and the, the power of the human spirit. But that is exactly how you get further and further away from the God who saved you, the God who created you. And that's how the progression goes. This last phrase, in my New King James, it reads this, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Unfortunately, that's not the best translation for that phrase. In the Hebrew, it says, Rave et chasame, which literally means to destroy the watered with the thirsty. As if that, when you have this, say that you have a garden, and then you have a, 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 bush or a plant that has not been watered and it's dying and then you have another bush that has been watered and it's taken care of and it's been watered but you look at the bush that has that is thirsty and has been dried up and so then you go to prune that out or clean that out but instead you wiped out the whole garden and you killed the plant that was good as well and that's what happens when somebody devolves into this idea of self-worship they might be surrounded with good things. They might be surrounded with good brethren who believe. But then when it comes time that somebody devolves into this idea of self-worship and then they just start this self-exile and they just start destroying themselves, what happens is that starts to pollute and hurt the others around them. And that when that gets removed from, whether it's a congregation or a community, what can happen is that a great deal of damage can come to the greater body and all of the brethren and those that believe. Those that are good believers who have been nourished by God, but the destruction that can come will wipe out even the watered with the thirsty if you're trying to get rid of what doesn't belong. There's also, you might have heard it there, that word et, 
That's one of the famous places, there's lots of them, where the Aleph Tav appears in very unique places at times in the Hebrew Scripture. And the Aleph Tav, we believe, is a sign of Yeshua, where it said that Yeshua was the first and the last. In the Hebrew would be the Aleph and the Tav. And that shows up right there, that when you, when this progression of falling away from God, when it gets all the way to the, as far as self-worship, what it does is you simply, you destroy the work that Yeshua is doing. Because Yeshua said that he He's a drink that if you drink of him, you'll never be thirsty again. And he's a piece of bread that you eat and you'll never be hungry again. And he nourishes the people through his testimony and all of those things. And if this happens to somebody, one of your brethren, what you do is you destroy the work that the Messiah has done. And that's why this is such a horrible thing. That's why this is an abomination to God as this progresses. It then continues on in verse 20, and it talks about what the Lord will do to you when this happens. It says this, The Lord would not spare him, for the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity. According to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when they see the plagues of the land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. All the nations would say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? Then the people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers which he made with them. And he brought them out of the land of Egypt, for they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods which they did not know, and that he had not given to them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger, in wrath, and in great indignation. He cast them into another land as it is this day. And there we go. We have another instance where this is the history of the land of Israel. When the children of Israel entered into the land and then they were cast out and they broke the covenant. And they did devolve into self-worship and they did destroy the watered with the thirsty. And they even, they, they even killed the Messiah that was sent to them to bring salvation. And they were cast out of the land. And for many, many years, the promised land of Israel was a barren wasteland. It was a desert. In fact, in the 1800s, you can find books and you can see photographs of the land of Israel in the 1800s. And it looks like every other Arab nation in the Middle East that is just nothing but a big dry desert with a bunch of rocks and hills and a few couple of plants that pop up here and there and people just trying to make it by. Bedouins living in tents and, and, and uh, sheep looking for just a bite of something to eat in just this barren wasteland of a desert. And the famous author Mark Twain wrote of it as well, that it's like, this is not a promised land. That going there to what was supposedly this holy land, that was the promised land for a people to be delivered into, is no place that anyone would want to live. And that's what we had for many years when the children of Israel were cast out into a land and scattered them into the nations. But today, as it is this day, the children of Israel, there are some that have returned back to the land. 
since 1948, we've had a decree from all the nations, from the United Nations, that has brought the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. And since 1948, the land of Israel has become a flourishing garden, an oasis in the midst of a giant desert. You can look at satellite maps and you can see the cutout of the shape of Israel because it is green and things grow there. And Israel has become a booming economy and a produce provider for the entire region. They grow all the produce for all the Middle Eastern region, even up into Europe as well, from produce to flowers to all kinds of things. And it is a lush farmland since 1948 because the Jewish people have returned back to the land. And the Lord has remembered the land and he's caused it to flourish again. And that is in stark contrast to the judgment that was put on the land for the sin of the children of Israel. And we can see that even today as it is this day. Now, we, there are the children of Israel that are still scattered into the nations that we are, they don't know who they are. And we're, we're talking about the greater two house teaching about how the northern kingdom was scattered into the nations. And we're looking forward to the rest- restoration of the whole house of Israel. That is something that's still yet to come. And you can still see that with great anger and great wrath, God cast those people into the nations. And that's where they are as it is this day. So how do we rectify this? How do we get back to the land? How do we see the restoration of all things and the whole house of Israel back to the promised land? Well, what we need is we need fishermen to go into the land and to fish for the people and bring them back. And that is exactly what the Great Commission that Yeshua sent his disciples to do. He will make them fishers of men. That's exactly what the prophet Jeremiah says that he will send that. How will we restore all of these things? I will send hunters to hunt for them that will bring them back to the land. And just like a shepherd leads his flock, that he will gather them up and bring them back home. There's a hidden prophecy here in that scripture on that very last verse that I read where it says, and cast them into another land. In the middle of that Hebrew word is a enlarged lamed, which represents a shepherd's staff. And that it's as this judgment is, is being read out, we then have this last letter that stands out of this lamed and just say, well, you know, this is a horrible thing. The children of Israel, they didn't obey the Lord and they cast into the nations. Is that the end of the story? Do we stop there? I love actually in my Bible, my translation, that is the last line on a page. That if you just stop reading, if you stop on page 193 of my scripture, then you might think that the story is over and that's what's, and that's the end. However, there's a hidden prophecy and a hidden thing just in that one letter that says, no, I will remember my covenant and I will send a shepherd with a staff and he will regather them back. And so there is a prophecy there at the end of that judgment. And the last verse, verse 29 of chapter of uh, verse 29 of chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, it says this very unique verse says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Many people have speculated, this verse seems a little out of place. It seems it's this very unique, mysterious verse when the Lord is saying the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. Right here, that's sort of the question mark. How long does this judgment take place? The children of Israel being scattered into the nations, cast into all these other nations because they followed after other gods. How long does that take place? 
That's a secret. It belongs to the Lord. Has not yet been revealed on how those things will happen and will unfold. Now, there are some things in Scripture that have been revealed. Mysteries of the prophecies and things that have been fulfilled in the Scripture and that many people have devoted their life to studying the Word. And there are interpretations and things that have been revealed that have enlightened the Scripture. And that knowledge that we have found belongs to us. To mankind, that we can be encouraged and uplifted in all the different things that we study in the scripture and discover. That's something that is no longer a secret, but is now a piece of knowledge that is a benefit to us and to all the generations that follow after us. And that's the contrast here. There are some things in life that we do not know that are still a secret to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. But when those things may be revealed, then they are a benefit to us. Then they are revealed to us and then that is for our benefit and our children's benefit and our children's children will have that knowledge and that revelation of what God has done for us. And as the prophecies continue to unfold and as we continue to look forward to the return of Yeshua, more things will be revealed. More things will no longer be a secret for us to be curious about, but then suddenly the blessings of the Lord become alive and powerful. We don't know how long that time period is. How long will the exile last before the children of Israel return? It's very interesting because then the very next chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, then starts talking about how the return back to God will happen. So we don't know how long it's going to take, but this is what will happen when the return begins. Follow along now, uh, chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. Now shall come to pass, when all of these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord drives you. So we're all scattered in the nations. Now things are allowing us to, to come to mind. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. According to all that I command you today. You and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you. And gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord will gather you. And from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land of your, that your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is how the return comes. That Hebrew word return is shuv. That's the root word of the word teshuvah, which means repentance. And that's what it takes. It takes repentance of the mistakes that we've made. We've seen the blessings. We've seen the curses. We've kept some commandments. Other commandments we have failed to keep. And we have seen the result of all of it. We can look in world history and we can see the result of the children of Israel and what happened to them after they entered into the land. And after all of this, if we return back to the Lord our God, if we make teshuva, if we make repentance, then he will bring us back with compassion. Though he had wrath and anger when he cast us away, he will have compassion on us when we return. Anyone who reads the scripture, how can you ever say that God ever had a plan A with the children of Israel, they broke the covenant, he scattered them into the nations, he's done with them, and then God now brings up and raises up another people, like the Christian church, and that Israel is now no more. 
That God now has a new group of people that he, that he speaks to and calls his people and that he casts this other one away. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says that he has compassion over those, even though we have been with great wrath and anger and we broke every covenant, broke every commandment, every curse has fallen upon the children of Israel, every judgment. However, there is a time in which he will bring them back out of the nations where he scattered them and have compassion on them again, if they confess the iniquity of their forefathers. He'll bring them out of every nation, no matter where they've been, no matter to the ends of the earth. It doesn't matter if on the opposite side of the globe. It doesn't matter if they're up on either poles to the farthest ends of the earth. I guarantee you that our father Abraham never heard of Oklahoma or the United States of America or anywhere where you might be scattered into the nations. Yet, no matter where you are, God will bring you back. And then he'll circumcise our heart. Once again, another phrase that sounds very much like a New Testament, New Covenant phrasing, finds it right here in our Torah and says that's the plan from the very beginning. That Lord, the Lord will circumcise our heart and so that we will turn to him and love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul. I always love bringing up this uh, passage and this parallel here. If you would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32 where God commands us to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul. But this is where we get to learn a little something about God here in this passage. Jeremiah chapter 32, let me begin at verse 37. It says this, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger. This is talking about the exact same thing we just read in our Torah portion. In my fury and in my great wrath, I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them and do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. This is the one time in all of the passages of Scripture where God reveals something that he will do with all of his heart and all of his soul. He commands us to love him with all of our heart and our soul, and we have a responsibility to do that. And now we get to reveal the character of God that the one thing, the greatest desire that he has is to see his people return back to the land of Israel. Though he casts them out into other nations with great anger, he will bring them back. He'll make a covenant with forever with them, and it will do them good for their children and their children after them. And then they'll give, he'll give us one heart and one way to follow. Now, does that mean we got one beating heart and we have to share it between our chests? No, it doesn't work that way. It means that we will be a people that will be in unison, knowing what, our, what the Lord's desire is. And we will confess in one voice, in one accord, our belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he will give us one way, one law, one truth for all of us to follow. And in doing so, we'll dwell securely, safely, in peace. Don't you want to dwell in peace? Don't we always find ourselves every day we're in conflict with one another and we're in a place and we feel unsafe in certain places and, and, and safe in others and all of, this, all of these questions that we have to deal with? No, I, I prefer a place where we dwell in peace, 
with neighbors that I that that believe the same as I do, and that we have one way, one law that we all follow, and one heart and one desire that we all have to worship the Lord our God, and we worship a God that all of with all of His heart and all of His soul, He loves us and wants us to dwell there safely and securely. That's what that's the God that we serve. And that's what we're talking about here. All of this coming together. So here he gives us the commandment for us to return. And then he tells us later in the prophets what he will do for us and what he, his desire is. It's an amazing God that we serve. Verse 7 of chapter 30 continues on. Also, Lord, your God will put all these curses on your enemies and those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will come again to obey the voice of the Lord, your God, and all of his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord, your God, will make you abound in the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock. And it continues on with more blessings that all of it, if you just turn to the Lord, your God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. That's all we have to do. And then all of these things, any of the curses, bad things, will happen to those that hate us, that persecuted us, that stood against us, and the Lord will return vengeance upon them. Verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off, nor is it in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven and bring it to us? That we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go out over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. This is a profound statement because in ancient times, this was being spoken to them and it was, the, the words were right there in a book of Moses speaking to him from a mountain and, and, and these were the words and it was not too hard for them to hear those words right then in that moment. Because back in those days, if there was something that they heard was beyond the sea on another island far off or up in heaven, there was no way that, that was fantasy to them to have to be, to be able to travel that far or to go across the sea and retrieve something from another nation. In this day and age, even those things are, are child's play in this day and age. Who will ascend to heaven? We, you look up, you see airplanes flying overhead all the time. People have left the earth and come back. I can pull, up, pull out a device in my pocket and I can pull up a live video, a feed of somebody that's sitting in a space station that's hovering over in orbit. I can also pull up a live video of something that's happening on the other side of the globe right now. I can pull up a piece of information that comes from anywhere in the world and it can be at my fingertips in a matter of minutes. That's the world that we live in now. So if they're going to tell the children of Israel in ancient times that this world word is and this, these commandments are very near to you and don't say that any of these things because those things are too hard, but it's very near to you now. Then what does that say about us today? That all of those things are so simple and so easy that you can walk into any store and go buy a book and the Bible. They didn't even have the printing press and they didn't have copies of the scripture. But today we do. Today, it, it actually puts a little bit of fear in me that we live in a world where these things and these commandments are so near to us that we can read these words. Literacy is at an all-time high in the history of all the world, in the, in the, in the first world, that we, people can read, they can get a book, they can get a copy of this. Even if you can't see very well, you can get one with large print. You can get these words any way you can in a matter of minutes on your smartphone or on the Internet, on your computer, and you can pull up the Scripture at any time. And what does that say about us if then we still do not hear the words and obey? That we have them at our fingertips so easily, yet we still do not believe. 
And we still do not let those words penetrate us. It's almost, we've become desensitized to the amount of information that we have. Truly, if all the information that we focused on, if it was a, if it was a big deal for us to sit down and read a book, like we, I mean, we don't ever get a chance to sit down and read a book, but when we do, we're going to sit down and we're going to read the Bible. And if that was the only time you ever got to read, man, those words are powerful and impactful. And if you ever time you're going to sit down and you're going to go on the internet for something, you're going to bring up something scriptural. And then that's the one thing that you're going to draw out of the internet or off the TV or anything like that. If that was the only times that we went and got that information, it would mean something. But we have been so desensitized in this country, the information overload, that we're sitting here trying to balance, well, okay, that's fiction and that's nonfiction, and oh, there's a copy of the Bible there, and there's some entertainment over there, and we completely lose focus on the impact and the power of the words that we have in front of us. That's the world that we live in, and that's, that's the scheme of the enemy that has made that so. But we've got to look at these words, and that's why we have to open the Bible, and we have to actually read these words. And when we hear them, and when it says today, believe that those words are powerful today, even though it might have been written thousands of years ago, that those words are still applicable today. Let that penetrate you in your mind and in your heart. And understand, it is not hard. We have the words. All we have but to do is believe and choose to read them. So God gives us a choice. Very next verse, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, walk in his ways, and to, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so as to not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. God calls the perfect witnesses for us to make this choice. He calls heaven and earth. Jeremiah chapter 33 at verse 25 is a very interesting passage. I encourage you to check that out, where it talks about how the covenant that he has made with Israel and with King David at that time will stand as surely as he has made the covenant with the day and the night and with the, and with the foundations of the earth and the heavens and the earth and how the, how the lights and the expanse of heavens interacts with the earth. And as sure as those things exist is as sure as the covenant that God has made with Israel. Let me ask you a question. Did the the sun rise today? Will it set later today? Now, I know some of you live in north parts of Alaska where the sun in the summer doesn't really go down at all, so maybe the covenant's not for you. No, I'm kidding. That is... That's the way the day and night works with when you're in that place. But no, the sun will rise, the sun will set, and as sure as the sun and the earth interact with one another and the sun will rise and the sun will set is as sure as the covenant that God has made with Israel still stands to this day. That is what it means when it says he calls heaven and earth as a witness. So we have a choice. He's given us the covenant. He's laid it out for us. It's not too hard to decide. It's not too hard to do. The words are here. God commanded Moses to say them. These are the words from God coming and being spoken to us. 
So what do we choose? Standing here today, today on this date, 2018, not just because these are written a long time ago, it doesn't matter. Choose today who you serve. Today, what covenant will you follow? And will you follow him or will you continue to be ensnared by the idols of the world and continue to fall away from the faith, away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You will surely perish if you do. It'll start slowly with being caught by idols and things that are interesting. Then you'll become bitter. And then you will turn completely away from the Lord and will even be the destruction of yourself. As you fall into self-worship as you go down that path. May I submit to you that you don't choose that path. The one that leads to death and curse. But you choose the path that leads to life and to blessing. Following the covenants and the commandments that God has given to us to follow. It's not hard. All we have to do is choose and decide today. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord. For your teaching, your instruction, your covenant, your words that you've given to the children of Israel through Moses. And Father, may these words, may how they exist outside of time, Father, and may they impact us in our life today. Who we follow, what commandments we will keep. May we love you with all of our heart and all of our soul, Lord. And may we return back to you, even though we have sinned, even though our ancestors have sinned, Father. Lord, it is your desire with all of your heart and all of your soul to see us return back so that you can then give us the blessings of the land, Lord. Father, I pray that that day come very soon. I pray that your kingdom come very soon, Lord. May you establish your kingdom in our lifetime, Lord, and may we continue to look forward to the return of your son, Yeshua, and all the blessings that will come with that, Father. Father, I pray that you would just restore us and make us anew, Lord, as we are in the midst of the fall feasts, Lord. And may we make return, make repentance back to you, and may we be restored back and made anew as you make us a new creation and make us one new man. So, Father, we love you, we bless you, and thank you at this time. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Fachailam nata betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles to, in the New Testament, to the ch- book of Romans, chapter 9. Uh, this week's Torah portion about Nitzavim. I'm not talking to all those that are standing here today. A very intriguing passage. It's always the Torah teaching before Rosh Hashanah. And so we have this teaching that sets the stage for Rosh Hashanah and the Feast of Trumpets for us. So let me uh, share with you uh, from Romans chapter 9. We are going to be looking at verses nine, uh, verse 30 in chapter 9 and reading through verse 13 of chapter 10. <clears throat> so at verse, <clears throat> pardon me for my throat. <clears throat> so at verse 30 it says this, <clears throat> what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, 
but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For the Messiah is the goal of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring the Messiah down, or who will descend into abyss, that is to bring the Messiah up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we are preaching, that if we confess with your mouth, Yeshua as the Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the Lord, name of the Lord, will be saved. Now, Nitzavim, the passage uh, that we have for the Torah portion this week, uh, as Ephraim was talking about, Moses is speaking out to a group of people, but then he talks about another assembly. He talks about another group of people that are not there at that moment. But he speaks of them that they will see Israel go into the promised land, disobey the Lord, be scattered in the nations. So we believe that he's talking to the end time believers. And that's the message that he shares. Now the paradox is this. You would think he'd be definitely talking to just Israel. Not true. He's talking to Israel and to a lot of other people. And that's what we find here in Romans chapter 9, specifically about uh, the Gentiles have come to righteousness by faith, whereas the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders, they sought righteousness but only through the law and not by faith. Uh, it's a little bit like um, the, the spirit and truth. Uh, if you only pursue the truth, but you don't want to deal with the spirit of God, you're not doing what God wants you to do. And by the way, let me go ahead and just add this. If you pursue the spirit of God, but you don't want to listen to the truth, you're going to miss it as well. It's the two of them working together that is the maturity of the faith and what we are to pursue. Now, Paul is going to go on here a little bit further, and uh, from this passage, in fact, all the way through 9 through 11, and if you recall from last week, I covered a passage in Romans 11. These are the three chapters a lot of Christians have great struggle with, Christian teachers in particular, because we're talking about Israel, but Paul's explaining how Gentiles get to be a part of Israel. 
how Gentiles get to come in by faith and that a way has been made for them to join with Israel and be a part of the remnant of Israel, to be actually called the remnant of Israel or the children of promise. And he goes on to give this particular teaching that the way this was set up was that when the Messiah came and he was expressing very directly about believing in God and believing that he had been sent by the Father and that the Father was offering free redemption and the free gift of eternal life, this was completely contrary to Jewish religious thinking. They honestly believed that you had to work for it, that you had to achieve a certain kind of righteousness through the law before you could ever begin to approach uh, the kind of righteousness that leads to uh, being in the kingdom, to eternal life, to uh, complete forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of that, but that has carried over to a lot of folks. It, at first blush, it sounds reasonable. It sounds logical. You should do the right thing. And that's what righteousness is. Do the right thing, and then good things will happen to you. Well, that's certainly true of obedience producing blessings. But we're not talking about obedience, and we're not talking about blessings. We're talking about, you know, what is the justification of faith? How is it that we receive the gift of forgiveness of sin? And how do we receive the gift of eternal life? And Paul's whole thesis in this book is based on the promises that God gave to Abraham, and it's completely apart and separate from the law. Now, did the faith nullify the law? No. Does the law nullify faith? No. They work together. And that's the complexity for a lot of uh, believers, Christians today. How do I reconcile my faith in the Messiah along with, well, I have all these commandments now in the Torah I've got to keep. Uh, for those that cross that threshold and begin to trust the Lord and who also want to obey the Lord because they feel that's the right thing to do, they find that this whole question just fades away. It, it's really not a valid question. If you trust and believe in God, surely you should do what he says. I mean, that's the basis of relationship for anyone else. You wouldn't do things that are contrary to your friend if you said you were a friend with him. Uh, nor if you said you were trusting someone, would you do the opposite of what they say. If you trust them, you would do what they say. And since we have cleared up the issue that salvation is not by works, salvation is not by keeping commandments, salvation is not by the works of the law, um, salvation is by faith, that subject should never come up again. Uh, if you have the faith, wonderful, great. And in fact, in this portion... Paul emphasizes that uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, and, and, that, and then in the heart you believe, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. The reason why the mouth is made in confession is, is that you're putting on the outside what already exists on the inside. Um, a person who is deceptive will have one thing in his heart and will express something else on the outside. He is really this way, but he gets you to think he's the other way based on what he does, what he says, or what he does. He's deceptive. And by the way, the faith that we have in God is not based on deception. It's based on truth. 
So if you believe God in your heart, then your mouth should be expressing the same thing. Your confession of faith. I believe in the Messiah. I believe he was sent by the Father. I believe that he's paid the price. I'm, I'm trusting his redemption. I'm looking forward to the gift of, that he's promised me of eternal life. I'm trusting him for those things. And by the way, with my mouth, I'm testifying to that that is what he has done and that I believe it. Um, that is separate from, say, keeping Sabbath. I don't keep Sabbath uh, to necessarily convince you that I'm a believer. I don't keep the commandments of the Lord to convince you I'm a believer. If you want to know if I'm a believer, ask me, I'll tell you. I will confess with my mouth, and I will tell you. And when we hear the confession from the mouth of a person giving testimony of faith, we're to treat them as a brother. Uh, and, uh, and then we, you know, we watch their behavior. Now, if they're a true believer, the behavior is going to match what they said. If all of a sudden we find them in a pattern of behavior, of doing that which is contrary to what the Lord has said, then we have a reasonable question. You said, but you do this. And so Paul is trying to express here uh, how all of those things work together with the emphasis on you got to have that faith thing. You have to have faith in the Messiah. Uh, you have to call upon his name to be saved. You have to make the request of him. And then he does all the saving work. He does the work of redemption. He's So that the Messiah is credited <coughs> and praised completely for your salvation. You don't go in and say uh, in the kingdom, by the way, I trusted the Lord a little bit. And I also did all these good things, so that's the reason why I'm here. No. You trust the Lord, and the Lord did the whole work of salvation for you, and all you did was acknowledge it. All you did was confess it, that he had done so. He also goes on further to say specifically here at verse 12 in chapter 10 that there's no distinction between a Jew and a Gentile with regard to this. And, of course, in Paul's day... There was great distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he was having to counter that. Uh, and we still have that same distinction going on today. Even within our Messianic movement, we have that distinction. Now, if you go back all the way to when the children of Israel and the nation of Israel was first formed, they didn't have that distinction. There was no distinction between Jew and Gentile. You were the children of Israel, and there were some aliens and sojourners amongst you, but they were numbered with the tribes of Israel. Depending on where they inhabited and what tribe they were associated with, they were numbered with being in that tribe. And so they were part of the children of Israel. They were referred to as the remnant, the whole assembly. And Moses has given us commandments that is for all people. And emphatically has stated it many times, there will be one law, one baptism, one spirit, you know, one salvation. There's not one for the Jews and a different one for the Gentiles. And so Paul is reiterating that salvation belongs to all. There is no distinction with God concerning this. And by the way, if there's no distinction concerning the salvation, then there's also no distinction with regard to which commandments we're supposed to follow. However, as you know, 
We live in a world where we have churchmen saying, oh, we don't have to keep the law. We believe in Jesus. And then we have Jews that say, well, I keep the law and I don't have to believe in Jesus. Both of them got it wrong. Both of them have it wrong. Both of them have a piece of the truth, but they need to be coming together. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Paul teaches. But that is contrary to religious men, whether they be Jew or Christian. It is contrary to their doctrines and so forth. Part of the reason I think it is, is because they all have their own version of who gets to be in charge. And the Jews don't want to relinquish any control. The churchmen don't want to relinquish any control. So they stay stuck into these opposite positions, which is contrary to what the Lord has taught us. In the meantime, just to maintain their positions uh, for it. I don't believe that the Lord, at the end of the ages, is going to be honoring their so-called positions. I believe he's going to come back and he's going to wreck their theology. That he's going to be convincing them that what Paul said here is correct, what Moses taught was correct, and that this is his position. This is what God has said concerning all of these things. Um, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say for the Jew calls upon the name of the Lord. It doesn't say the Gentile who calls. It says whoever. And whoever is not specific to any people, tribe, or tongue, it it includes all peoples, all tribes, and all tongues. Which is, by the way, goes back to the issue of what God purposed with Abraham, that in your seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. And so it was God's plan, the original gospel that he preached to Abraham, um, that original gospel is for all of mankind. Whosoever or whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, we live in a time where we continue to show distinction. I wish it wasn't so, but it is. Uh, and it's difficult for a lot of brethren. Even within the Christian faith, there, there's still moments and elements of them where they still show distinction between one another in different kinds of ways. For example, whether it be racial or ethnic or whether it be economic, they, they show distinctions and so forth to it. Uh, I've seen some churches, big churches, nice churches, a lot of nice people going there, people that are of low economic means, you need not apply because they're not going to help you. And you don't really qualify to be in their social structure. And they will send you the signal, uh, subtly as they can do, that you really should move on. Uh, The same thing is true of other congregations and other differing or distinctive elements that they may use. One of the things that I have enjoyed about the Messianic movement, and one of the things I hope the Messianic movement will continue to have this testimony... I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're an Asian, uh, a black person, if you're Mexican, uh, if you're a white Caucasian. I don't care if you come from a different country and speak a different language. You are all welcome to come here to worship the God of Israel, to learn the Torah, and to proclaim Yeshua, the Messiah, the King of Kings. And, And I hope and I'm praying that this movement will continue to grow and that that it truly will become 
the mixed multitude and that everyone will understand they're all part of Israel. They are all part of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is called Israel. And they are therefore the believers of that kingdom. They are called the remnant of Israel. We're all part of the commonwealth of Israel, as Paul teaches. We're all part of that. Now, that doesn't take anything away, quite honestly, guys, from any particular custom or any particular uh, special thing about different folks. Um, for example, uh, uh, the... Um, the Asian people have certain characteristics about them which are very admirable and very honorable. Same thing with every other ethnic group. There are distinctive elements within them. None of that goes away. We all still get to have that diversity, all get to have that enjoyment, and so forth. And we all get to be part of the kingdom. Everybody has value. Everybody contributes. Paul specifically emphasizes how that we're many different parts coming together to make a whole and to be unified to become one house of fellowship or one family of God. And so it, we're not punching people out like in a cookie cutter uh, where we all have to look the same way and behave exactly the same way. But the one thing that is clear is we serve one God and we serve the commandments. We obey the commandments that he has given. That's where we have our unity in. That's where we have it. And we all are to have the testimony of faith. We're all to have this testimony of calling upon the name of the Lord and that our, our salvation has come by him, not by any works of righteousness. Now, I don't know why that uh, quite fully this whole giant story about why my brethren, uh, the, the natural born of Israel, and in particular, um, those of the house of Judah, why they, uh, when the Messiah actually came, why didn't they get this right? Why did they reject him? Well, Paul says that part of the reason why it's taken is because there is a prophecy that said it would happen. And we, as we go in and to examine it, uh, it, it appears that they set something up apart and separate from God, and that's, that's the reason why they had to object to the Messiah. I believe the Messiah came not teaching a new thing. I believe he came teaching exactly what Moses had taught, but he was here to make a renewed covenant to, to bring us back to that, to restore us, to bring us to return back to the original covenant and promises. But some, of course, say that in the case of that he was trying to change the law. They was trying to get rid of the customs of Moses. That was the accusation made against Yeshua. It is not correct. It is false. What's more is that's exactly what the Christians, even though the New Testament says that's false, the Christians go around promoting that that's exactly what he did do. That he came to change the things of Moses, change the customs of Moses, get rid of the temple service, all the things uh, like that. You know what, guys? If he did, if he did that, then he just disqualified himself from being the Messiah. He disqualified himself. And nobody should be believing in him. One of the greatest prophecies of the Messiah 
uh, and one in which I think the Jewish people very, very much so believe in, but I don't think Christians quite get it. I don't think they even understand it is a prophecy about the Messiah. It says, For the Torah shall go forth out of Zion, and the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem. That prophecy says that the Messiah is to come and teach Torah and the commandments of God to all the people of the world. Now, I can see where my Jewish brethren got tripped up by that because they weren't following Moses to begin with. And when Yeshua came teaching Moses, it was contrary to what they understood. The rabbis didn't, weren't saying that. The Pharisees weren't doing it. The Sadducees weren't doing it. The scribes weren't doing it. So when he came teaching actually what Moses said, they had a problem with it. But the Christians... They think that Yeshua came and he's definitely not teaching the Torah. Not The greatest prophecy of the Messiah is that he will teach Torah to all the nations. So here we are, the nations, the Gentiles coming to faith. Where is the Torah being taught to them by the Spirit of the Messiah? Well, in a Messianic congregation, you'll get that. I'm here to advocate and to teach you the commandments of the, of the Lord right along with the Messiah. And that the Messiah and those commandments are not in conflict, they're in complete agreement. However, as you know, and that was my experience growing up in the church, that preachers would stand up and say that Yeshua came doing things contrary to the Torah. Things like breaking Sabbath. Things like not washing hands, not following certain rituals, and things like that. If the Messiah transgressed any of the commandments of the Lord, then he was not sinless. Because the scripture defines sin as the transgression of the law. If he spoke against the law or transgressed the law, then he sinned according to the biblical definition of sin, and he's not sinless, and he has blemish, and he cannot be the sacrifice for the redemption of the world. Like the lamb, it has to be without spot, without blemish. The Messiah came to us. He was without spot, without blemish. They, they examined him. They could find no sin in him. And he offered himself up as the lamb of God then. So us going around and saying, well, there is a distinction between Jew and Gentile. The Jews keep the Torah. We don't have anything to do with that. We're the church. We're the Gentiles. And oh, by the way, we believe in the Messiah. And we think the Messiah did something completely different from the law. He came to do away with it and so forth. Can I just tell you, Mr. Christian, as much as you look at Jews and say they're probably not going to be in the kingdom of God in the end, the same can be said for you. The same can be said. It shouldn't be that way. It should not be that way at all. This instruction from Paul, in conjunction with Moses' instruction, speaking to a future people that will one day see the Lord bring all of Israel back, to bring them back so they return to the Lord. Um, and that he doesn't break the covenant, he doesn't abhor them so as to, to get rid of them. He continues to love them and keep the covenant with them. And that they will return eventually to the promised land. 
there is going to be restoration. Well, our faith that he did the work of redemption, then we should also have the same faith to believe he'll do the work of restoration. Now, my Jewish brethren and those earlier believed redemption would be coming and their faith was counted as righteousness. Abraham, his faith was counted as righteousness. We believe redemption has come. We believe that we have received the promise of redemption. And we believe in the Lord that he was the one who did it. But we also believe in the future restoration. A future yet thing. When the Messiah will come back and restore all things. Restore the fortunes of Jacob. Just what he says. Bring us all back and we'll all be in the kingdom together. All of us. Not just the native born. The aliens and sojourners who believe in the God of Israel, too, will be a part of it. But we also know from the history of Israel, there have been those who thought they were religious, who thought they knew best, who made huge mistakes, and they didn't make it to the promised land. For example, Korah, Dathan, and Aviram. They had various reasons why they thought they were above or should be held in a distinct way different from everyone else. That, so that they were hired or qualified. That, uh, that they followed certain rules that other people didn't follow the rules. The same gets propagated by those who add to and take away from the scripture. And by the way, the Christian world is just as guilty of that mistake as the Jewish people and the people of Israel were. They're just as guilty of the same thing. So be careful how you judge the previous generations because you may get judged by the same measure. But I believe this. I believe God is faithful to his covenant. I believe he's faithful to his redemption. And I think his arm is not short that he doesn't know how to save his people. And by the way, I believe and I'm hoping that that will be true of me, that he'll continue to be faithful to the covenant that he's made with me as one of the descendants that he'll continue to show forgiveness to me for all of my sins, and that his arm is not short, that he can reach down and he can save Monty Judah and get me to the kingdom. I believe those things. And I don't have one faith about God over here and a different one over here. It's one God, and this is what God's been doing all along. That's the emphasis of what Paul is trying to make here. Just as Moses is trying to speak to a future group where there's a group standing right there in front of him. Even though he knows these different groups are going to make mistakes and so forth, he sees it as a collective whole. He sees all of Israel. And that's the way the Lord sees all of his people. He sees all of us. Thank goodness for his mercy. Thank goodness that he uh, doesn't hold us to our sins and judges accordingly, uh, but instead shows mercy with his justice and is highly gracious to us. Amen? So that's our portion for this Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom.
you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying, Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom.